All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. The Internet of Rollups is this idea that in the same way that Cosmos had this vision for an ecosystem of blockchains where each one was sovereign, could make its own rules and control its own destiny, and that would allow for much faster innovation in L1s, um, we want to see the same thing applied to Rollups. All right, buddy. Welcome back. Good to see you. This is going to be a good one. We've got um, Preston, uh, who is one of the co-founders at Sovereign Labs, and and Coleman, who's one of the co-founders at uh, Slush SDK. Uh, you want to give a couple words about why we've invited these two guys on? So, you know, all season we've been, you know, kind of teasing out the benefits of a full stack app chain versus, say, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, an app specific roll up, you know, even an L3. Um, and in the middle, you've got Celestia, you know, this mod modular approach and Sovereign Labs, which is leveraging that to to let applications build you know, sovereign app-specific rollups um, that, that really handle more of the stack um, or as close as possible to a full stack app chain uh, as we've seen yet. So I think, you know, we have within this family of app-specific rollups, builders at either end of the spectrum. Um, and I think today we just want to talk about, you know, what they think about what goes into a, a minimum viable stack for, for applications. Um, you know, what are some of the network effects associated with SDKs um, that, that has let the Cosmos SDK be so successful. How do they plan to replicate that from an adoption standpoint? And uh, yeah, really excited to dig into it with them. All right, let's jump right in. All right, everyone, welcome back to another Bell Curve. Uh, you're joined by uh, Miles and I, um, and today we've got Preston from Sovereign Labs and Kalman from Slush SDK. So this is probably going to be another relatively technical episode. So I think maybe we can start kind of high level and then drill down. Uh, you know, Miles and I have really been trying to explore this kind of um, spectrum, right, where you've got sort of the full stack sovereign blockchain kind of pioneered by the Cosmos ecosystem on the left. And then on the right, you've kind of got a, uh, you know, a roll app type environment that settles down to Ethereum. And then we've kind of got the middle, which is going to be represented here by uh, Sovereign Labs. Um, so Preston, maybe I could kind of kick it over to you. I know you sort of have a, a vision for kind of the, the uh, internet of, of rollups, uh, so to speak. So maybe you could just sort of give us the high level on uh, your vision and kind of direction at, at Sovereign Labs. Uh, and then, you know, as, as much as you want to drill down into the specifics of sort of the what and the why, that'd be uh, super appreciated. The internet of rollups is this idea that in the same way that Cosmos had this vision for an ecosystem of blockchains where each one was sovereign, could make its own rules and control its own destiny, and that would allow for much faster innovation in L1s, um, we want to see the same thing applied to rollups. So a rollup is just a blockchain, right? It's a blockchain that outsources some of its security to another chain. And the big advantage of having a rollup as opposed to a layer one blockchain is that you don't have to pay the capital costs of recruiting a validator set to do work for you. Um, so there's only room for a few L1s in the world because each one of them needs billions or more of dollars in security budget. And realistically, like nobody wants to spend that much money to secure, you know, whatever, a chain that only trades a few niche NFTs or something like that. But we do think that, you know, bottom-up innovation is where much of the, the good work comes from. And so you need a vehicle to allow that. So the internet of rollups is this idea that you should have rollups which are able to communicate with each other in the same way that Cosmos chains are able to communicate. 
um, but without sort of relying on each one of them having their own validator set to, to facilitate that. So what we're building at Sovereign is this tool called the Sovereign SDK, which is inspired in many ways by the Cosmos SDK, but trying to improve it and target application-specific rollups. So the core thesis is that these rollups should be efficient and they should be able to communicate seamlessly. And the way to do that is by using zero-knowledge proofs um, to let them talk to each other in a way that's trust-minimized. That's great. I appreciate you kind of laying out the uh, the broad vision there. Um, and, you know, I'd love to sort of dig into the different flavors of rollups now. Um, you know, you, you're talk, you know, totally understand the thesis here. You're trying to basically give all the benefits of a full stack app chain or as many as possible without the pains of spinning up, you know, your own validator set and, and really the security concerns around that as well. Um, and so maybe I'll, I'll kick it to Coleman here just to understand exactly where you're building on the spectrum of rollups. Um, you know, as I think about it, three big buckets, you have smart contract rollups, you have L3s that are built on settlement rollups, uh, and then you have sovereign rollups, um, much more like the sovereign SDK. Um, so Coleman, yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about uh, where slush you know falls on that spectrum um, and what do you think the different trade-offs are you know as you're as you're from the perspective of a builder looking at these three options so we're build, building l3s uh, slush currently focused on the starknet and the EVM ecosystems uh, the way we see it is uh, sovereignty is great but interoperability is more important and for interoperability uh, being able to bridge, to and from trustedly between the L3s, uh, state-proof bridges will be the most important, most important component. And for this, having the same virtual machine and the same circuit is essential. And inside a given ecosystem, you will be able to trustlessly bridge uh, between the different L3s and the uh, different L3s can all settle onto the same L2. And th this makes them ultimately all rely on the same L1 security, but the, the fact that they are settling on the L2 means that they are all secured, that they can they can quickly settle onto the L2 and bridge between each other very quickly. So it's basically you get the level of interoperability of Cosmos chains, right, with some sort of like client bridging capability, but within the same ecosystem of that you know, L2, everything settles to. Yeah, so maximum maximum security, basically. Got it, got it. And then Preston, how, how, how are you thinking, or how would you compare that approach to, to what Sovereign is building, um, where, you know, the, each individual rollup actually owns its own settlement? Um, how do you think about interoperability if you're making that trade-off to own your own settlement? Yeah, so our view here is that there's actually no trade-off. Um, so there's this really interesting set of results that shows that basically bridging between two separate blockchains is a fundamentally difficult thing to do. So something like Cosmos, you sort of necessarily have fragmented liquidity. And anytime you want to bridge across two different chains, you're in a bad place, right? You're trusting both validator sets. And if one of them is unreliable, then you can lose your money. Um, so it's risky, for example, to bridge from the Cosmos hub to some new IBC chain that nobody's really used before. That's not true for rollups. So with rollups, bridging is fundamentally easy in the same way that making a cross-contract call on Ethereum is fundamentally easy. Um, so at Sovereign, we take full advantage of this. And basically, the most important property to remember is that you're all on the same DA layer. So you all have the same consensus. And that means there's no way for one chain to roll back without all of the chains rolling back together. 
So if you want to send a message from you know, rollup A to rollup B, you can be sure that either that message got sent and delivered or it never got sent. But there's no middle state where it got sent on one chain but not received on the other chain. Um, so at Sovereign, what we do is we take advantage of this to allow you to bridge sort of natively between rollups without having to go through a shared settlement layer. And the big advantage of that is that we can support platforms that don't have smart contracts. Um, so if you want to build an L3, you need some sort of L2 smart contract in the middle, which can sort of pass the messages between chains and verify state routes and that sort of thing. In our construction, you don't need that at all. So we can run on a platform like EigenDA or like Celestia that doesn't have any scripting capability whatsoever. And we can still build bridges between rollups that are completely trustless. That's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's two, both using zero knowledge proofs, but definitely taking a little bit of different approach in terms of, you know, the amount of flexibility you have um, with these different you know, stacks. So I guess when you started building, what did you, what did you have in mind for what, I, what we've been calling the minimum viable stack? So what are the components that go into the minimum viable stack? And how do you really package them in the best way for developers, um, you know, balancing ease of use with customizability and configurability? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And I don't think we really know the answer yet. Like there, you don't know what the minimum viable thing was until it starts working. So at Sovereign, we're taking this approach of very iterative development. You know, we're hoping to come out with a minimum product soon, which we expect will probably be too minimal. And then we'll just keep adding features until it sort of starts to get traction. Um, but at a high level, what developers want is they want interoperability and they want some way to not have to roll the whole thing from scratch, right? So there should be some way of getting them a full node implementation that they didn't write themselves. Um, there should be some way for them to, for example, get access to cryptographic primitives like Merkle trees for state commitments, like hash functions, like digital signatures, without them picking all of those things for themselves, because those decisions require kind of a lot of expertise. Um, so at Sovereign, we're going to roll out a very minimal product in a few months here, and then we'll keep on iterating and, and getting bigger and bigger. Um, and in the fullness of time, we hope for it to be much like the Cosmos SDK, where you can essentially just write a few lines of code and the whole thing works out of the box. Yeah. And, and, and Coleman, maybe just to compare that to the slush side, you know, I think you spoke to the, the importance of, of sharing the same VM. Um, obviously these will all share the same settlement layer. And so I think it, you know, it, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're leveraging a couple more building blocks um, in building the stack. You can set you. So I understand that Sovereign uh, can settle anywhere that it wants to, but you know why would you? You can settle on well-established uh, layer ones and layer twos, which have do have you know very complete virtual machines, and this allows you to access very large developer community, a very large liquidity pool, and you know most of the current liquidity and developers are on existing uh, platforms and if you can allow them to scale then i think that has bigger implications i have a you know question for for sort of like common like you you have uh you know if you hit the the slush website right like you guys are starting on in kind of the starknet uh sort of ecosystem but it seems like the intent is to kind of bridge out of just that and build a more general purpose kind of SDK. Uh, Preston, you, you started from a very different angle, right? And it's kind of plug and play across a whole bunch of different ecosystems. Can, can both of you just kind of walk me through from, from your perspective, what was the decision to start a little bit more specific, Coleman, in, in your case versus Preston, it seems like you've taken a broader approach. So for us, uh, we really wanted to you know serve existing developers, provide decentralization them, and we 
didn't really know how the ZK EVMs was come along. Uh, so we started on with StarkNet, which you know was has been running for more than a year. And now that the ZK EVMs are coming along and being open sourced, we are also focusing on those. And here the focus is to you know really easily spin up new nodes, uh, new rollups, make them decentralized, allow existing uh, applications to move, and you know to allow existing uh, users to bridge their funds from L1 or to L2 to the new L3s. Cool, yeah. And then on our side, we started from a very first principles approach. So we asked ourselves the question, you know, what do we think blockchains are going to look like in 100 years? And the answer that I was really hoping to get to was like, we'll have some perfect version of Ethereum or a smart contract platform, which scales with the number of users. So when you add 100 more users, you also get you know more capacity that matches those new users. Basically, everybody can process their own data, and yet we all have a shared view of it. So that was the end goal. Well, it turns out that's like fundamentally impossible to do if you're actually executing transactions, because executing transactions is something that inherently has to be done by everybody. But it is possible if all you're doing is putting data in order, because you can make cryptographic commitments to the data that are sort of much lighter than the actual data itself. And then you can use data availability sampling to make sure that sort of everybody can retrieve the data when they need it. So you can you can build what we call hyperscale data availability systems. Um, this was pioneered by the good folks over at Eigenlayer. They came up with a lot of these ideas and also Celestia. Um, so what we wanted to do was we wanted to figure out how do you turn a hyperscale data system into a blockchain that supports every imaginable use case? Uh, because you can share security if you're using this hyperscale DA across a bunch of different logical state transition functions, so different ways of processing transactions. So for example, in theory, you could build Ethereum and Near and Solana all on top of this shared DA layer. And in some sense, they would inherit the same security. So in order to support that, you have to design for an environment where all you get is data. You don't have access to these primitives like smart contracts. But then as a consequence of doing that, you get to find all of these other magical properties. So suddenly in the process of designing this sort of hyperscale system, we just stumbled into the fact that suddenly you can bridge across these rollups in a native way um, without sort of being blocked. And you get other nice properties, like um, if you're an L3 on top of an L2, when the L2 gets congested, your fees go up as well. But if you're sovereign and you're not relying on someone else for settlement, then your fees are very predictable because all they depend on is the capacity of the underlying DA layer, which is extremely, extremely large. Right? DA layers can hyperscale. So that's sort of how we arrive where we're at today. So, you know, actually Ethereum will have plans. So uh, for the first principles approach is great, but the Ethereum community will have plans, you know, integrate DA, uh, the DA layer into Ethereum itself. And uh, they will also have plans for, you know, and this is all being, currently thought on right now, on how to integrate this hyperscaling, which is not possible with the current, I agree, with the current layer one, layer two, layer three ecosystem. But they also have plans of figuring this out. And I think this will also be done there, just to, you know, focusing on the current community and allowing them to scale. Yeah, thanks for raising that. So we're big fans of Ethereum. Uh, my co-founder, Jem, was an Ethereum core dev for a long time. Uh, and you're totally right. They are adding sort of more scalable data availability. The problem is that the data availability will scale much beyond the smart contract support. So while you have lots of data, you have very limited capacity for the L1 operations that would be needed to, to check that data availability. 
Um, and that's, again, fundamentally, fundamentally impossible to scale, at least with the current technology that we're aware of. I'd like to kind of get back to this idea of, because uh, Miles has sort of asked about, um, you know, this idea of like a minimum viable stack. And maybe we'll wait a little bit into the realm of uh, speculation here, Preston, because I agree with that answer. We don't necessarily know right now. But even if we just had to do like kind of high level frameworks, I think there there are so few SDKs that have kind of like escape velocity. And a lot of people probably listening to the show be familiar with the Cosmos SDK. And the sort of framework that you're in is like, how do I build a sovereign type blockchain? So you have like, uh, you know, Tendermint and IBC and, and that sort of thing. I, I'd be very curious, um, and maybe, uh, Coleman, I could sort of kick this to you first as someone in the, you know, Ethereum ecosystem or the, the StarkNet ecosystem, like there's very different design criteria, I would guess, right? So like, what are, like, what are the different um, needs for someone who's building kind of on, on the StarkNet layer, as opposed to maybe some of the design principles that went into the Cosmos SDK? Like, what are the core differences, do you think? So in the Ethereum ecosystem, it's much more focused on uh, security. And, you know, the mm. three main design choices are some people need decentralization, the most other applications need cheap data availability. And the first uh, third choice is, you know, fast bridging between the different uh, rollups. And, you know, maybe games will, and NFT rollups will need their own uh, data availability solutions so that they can really host a lot of data there. DeFi applications who are going for, they will need a lot of decentralization. And for applications, where composability is needed, uh, they will need really fast bridging. Got it. So, uh, like, kind of, kind of walk us through, like, what what does that actually um, sort of like? If you had to prioritize, I guess, across those those three needs, but then and then how does that actually you know end up looking in sort of SDK form? Like, take us through to like the need to what actually uh, is going to wind up in there. Okay, so so you want to launch your application you've been running what form on a layer two for some time and you know you're gathering users but you know you have too much throughput too much uh, latency uh, you can launch for example if you're a DeFi app you can launch a decentralized l3 or you can make it centralized so there's uh, a single sequencer and prover if you have a single sequencer and prover it makes the latency much smaller because you can confirm to your users that the application uh, that the transaction has been accepted much earlier and also settlement can be much faster. Or you can have a decentralized solution, in which case, you know, it's more expensive, it's more slow, but it's also more secure. So it's more, uh, it has more security when it comes to liveness. Every rule up is secure because it's all secured fundamentally by layer one. Uh, and it's more decentralized. And then, you know, you can have uh, the DA. It's uh, another question. For some rollups, they'll need to store all the data on layer one. Other rollups, which will, you know, technically not rollups, but Validiums or ZK Porters or uh, can store some of their data in different solutions. This can be stored, uh, stored by either the, the centralized uh, or decentralized validators of the network, or they can also settle this to an external uh, data ability layer like Eigenlayer, Celestia, etc. And uh, they will also be able to uh, specify, you know, how often they want to settle onto the L2. This also changes the uh, speed 
of bridging because you can also only uh, bridge between different layer threes once you've settled onto L2, but it increases your prices because more settlements means more prices. I mean, one, th one thing you said that, that struck me, I think, um, is the, the position of the app developer who is, you know, going to move to slush and right. You said that, okay, maybe they're on a general purpose L2 and they are, you know, need more throughput. Uh, they need, you know, more customization, something like that. And so it kind of leads me to, to think, you know, who, who do you, who, who do you think you're building for? Are you, when you think about your own go-to-market and adoption, are you thinking about the existing applications that you are trying to basically recruit over to your stack and you want to build in ways that are flexible enough to accommodate those existing, you know, VMs or other parts of their application. So it's more frictionless to, to migrate over. Or are you really thinking about, you know, a new class of applications that have, have not been built yet, but you're building for what you think they will move? Um, how do you strike that balance? So, you know, there's a huge amount of uh, innovation going on in all of the ecosystem from account abstractions to, you know, uh, wallets to vaults. And, you know, we are on the infrastructure layer. I don't think we are capable of anticipating all the needs and, you know, of the different applications. So what we can do is we can only provide the most general thing that anything can be built on. And this is, you know, a fully fledged virtual machine, either, you know, an EVM, Starknet virtual machine, but basically any virtual machine. And then the different app developers can choose for themselves what they want to, what kind of account abstraction contracts they want to deploy there, um, they can, they will be able to choose basically everything on top of that. But the basic infrastructure will have to be the same so that, you know, it's um, so that it's bridgeable and so that it's uh, extendable. No, it makes makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think, you know, Preston, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think you're building with a little bit more flexibility in mind. Um, maybe something that feels a little bit more like the Cosmos SDK stack where, you know, you're actually can build features into the chain itself um, since you own settlement. And so maybe just to kind of, uh, con you know, contrast that with, with slush approach, that'd be, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So we absolutely do want to support sort of traditional VMs like the EVM or like move or uh, like Solana's C-level runtime. Uh, but there are a lot of applications that you just can't express in that paradigm. So, for example, if you want to build an automated market maker or a DEX that processes things at a batch level, so everybody gets the same price within a block, there's fundamentally no way to do that inside of the EVM because you need a, a hook at the end of the block that you can invoke to settle all those transactions at once. Um, and that's not uncommon. There are many, many things for which you would want sort of VM support. And you fundamentally just can't do that on top of an existing VM. And you know, we take the same approach as common. We don't think we can anticipate what all of those things are, right? We think that's something that app developers will have to make up as they go along. And many of those haven't even been invented yet. So we want to support existing VMs, but we want to be flexible enough to allow people to create brand new VMs and also to do things which don't require a, a virtual machine. So for example, if all you're doing is building a DEX, you actually don't want to have all the complexity of you know, having pre-compiles to to verify, for example, BLS signatures like Ethereum does, um, because you pay for all of those things in several ways, in security budget, in runtime costs, all those sorts of things. Um, so we take a, an approach much like the Cosmos SDK. We try to be flexible enough to support general purpose virtual machines, 
but not really to push developers into that paradigm. And a lot of what we spend our effort on is building the little modules that you would need to plug together in order to make a very standard like DEX chain, think osmosis or duality, um, or the, the pieces that you would need to build um, you know, uh, an NFT chain, those sorts of things. So when you have different virtual machines and different, uh, you know, state trees, how can you, how can you bridge between them securely? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. So there's two pieces of the stack. One is the zero knowledge proofs. Um, so we only support a certain subset of zero knowledge proving systems, which are essentially turning complete. And if you're in that subset of proof systems, then you have this awesome property that you can take two separate proofs and you can create a, a new proof that says you verified the two original proofs. So using this recursive technique, you can compress 10 or 100 or 1,000 proofs down into a single proof, which is just as fast to verify as the original was. So as a roll-up, what that means is you can be chugging along processing your own transaction. And then somebody off-chain can create a proof that says, hey, roll-up B is currently in this state. And roll-up C is currently in this state. And whenever you want, you can check that proof. And that allows you to get a view into what their current state is. So all you need to do is essentially add a smart contract, which understands what it means that they're in a particular state. So, so for example, let's say that I have locked some tokens on chain B. On chain A, you need to verify, okay, has Preston really locked the tokens? And does that mean that those tokens are intended to bridge to chain A? So should I mint them over here? So you need a little smart contract to do interpretation and then a, a powerful enough zero knowledge proof system. Um, so one of the things that we focus on is uh, trying to enable different proof systems, which support very different operations, to talk with one another. Um, and there's there's lots of like hairy cryptographic details we could get into. But essentially, all you need is a proof system and a interpreter smart contract, and you can bridge from any kind of chain. To how do you make sure if you have different uh, virtual machines architecture? How do you make sure that the uh, thing that they are claiming to do is what they are actually doing? Because, you know, if you have two different smart contracts, because there are two different virtual machines of both ERC-20s, let's say, or the equivalent, how do you make sure that they cannot, you know, somehow mint 100 new tokens and send those out of the thinner? Yeah, so you're asking, like, what if you have a bridge to a malicious roll-up? Yes. Is that is that the question? Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's the same answer as in any bridging system. Like, if the other chain is malicious, then they can they're, you know, all we enforce it that they follow their own yes. rules not that they're all good rules. Yes. Um, that's fundamentally the trade-off you make when you're bridging between any two. So points. that's why we think that, you know, on the system level, you have to stick first to a trusted virtual machine, which will have to be a standard. And that's, you know, will probably be the EVM, which is, you know, a trusted virtual machine. And then on top of those, you can put any proof. Inside the EVM, you can handle any proof, uh, which, you know, your DEX, your... AMM, whatever, you can design any, virtu uh, any virtual machine on for that. You can prove it. You can settle it inside your, in a sense, a shell EVM. And then this EVM can bridge inside the ecosystem. So, you know, that's how we uh, imagine security and extensibility for other virtual machines and other prover systems, in a sense. Got it. So I think the thing that you're missing there is that these faults are not contagious. So let's say as roll-up B, you're connected to 12 other rollups and one of them is malicious. Users who aren't bridging their tokens onto the malicious chain have no risk from that malicious bridge. So as a user, if you bridge to a chain that says like, hey, burn all my funds, like, yeah, you lost your funds because you talked to a malicious smart contract, that's the same risk you have on the EVM. Um, so 
Cosmos already does this exact same thing and it works extremely so, well in practice. So, okay, so then maybe what we will have is that in our system, any two rollups, so all of them can easily interoperate. And, you know, bridging between any two ropes will be super simple. So in our case, it will actually be contagious. I, I just want to, uh, you know, kind of move the conversation a little bit uh, more towards like one question that that I have, frankly, is like uh, as a as a more non-technical founder here is I try to wrap my mind around like what is a traditionally understandable uh, business model. Right. So I very much understand kind of uh, what you guys are both providing, like the service. But I'd be very curious to understand Maybe I can just ask this question to both of you guys. Like, what are your kind of core business challenges? Like when you guys are going to bed at night, like what are you sort of thinking about? Like, man, if I could just get like these two things, then like I'd be feeling much better than I'm feeling right now. Um, and then if you could like anything that you could describe around like the business model here and how you guys actually monetize, I think that kind of makes things, uh, I'd just be very curious about how that works. So for us, uh, we, you know, in a decentralized ecosystem, it's very high to monetize anything because you know everything should be open source everything should be forkable and you know you can run your own system so for decentralized chains it will be much harder to monetize but we think that a lot of chains will not need to be decentralized and will need uh, centralization and uh, added speed that this guarantees and for them we will be able to guarantee a platform that helps them with this. Yeah, I completely agree with what Common said. You know, um, we we really believe in open source. Everything's you know Apache licensed, and you can freely fork it and change anything you want, um, which makes it very difficult for us to monetize directly. So our stuff is free and open source, and kind of always will be. So the way to make money then is to is to do things like offer premium support in the way that Red Hat does, or include a founder's reward in the default token implementation. And just tell people like, hey, if you don't like it, you can easily fork it out. Here's the code. Here's how you do it. But if you like the product, consider supporting us in developing it. Um, and then the last idea is that all of these ZK rollups need like proving services and they need some relay nodes to talk back and forth. So you can have an AWS-ish business where you, you know, stand up all that infrastructure for people so that as a developer, you just write your business logic and click a button and the rest of the chain magically appears. So, so there's a big space of potential monetization here, but frankly, you know, we want to have a working product before we worry too much about that. I think that makes sense. And, um, you know, how do you think, again, a little bit of a non-technical question, but, you know, we think a lot about end state market structure. Um, and how do you think that, you know, the end state market structure of rollup or I would say app chain stacks will look like, um, how powerful are some of the network effects around interoperability standards, you know, shared VMs um, that that could, you know, result in a winner take all or winner take most? And then what 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 factors would would cause, you know, an end state market structure to look like a lot more fragmented? Yeah, it's a really good question. Coleman, feel free to jump in here if you have any thoughts. Um, I guess it's it's pretty early for us to say anything for sure. You know, in general, we expect to see power laws pretty much everywhere. So 80% of chains will probably be on one or two common standards. Think like Cosmos SDK and Substrate today. You know, there are other options, but everybody's on one of those two. Um, but at the same time, there are lots of things that you might want to do which are more flexible. So, for example, there's Penumbra today, who's building a fantastic chain. And they use a lot of ideas from Cosmos, but they don't use the Cosmos SDK. We expect there will be chains like that forever as well. Yeah. So as we see it, uh, for any kind of similar chain like Penumbra or, you know, kind of separate chain with a separate uh, virtual machine, you will able to be able to prove that and settle it onto a 
a very standard virtual machine. And the benefit of having the standard virtual machine is, uh, is the interoperability between all of them. And I think this is very crucial, which if I didn't understood correctly, you will not have Preston. So this interoperability will also mean very strong network effects inside that ecosystem. And um, that's how, that's why I think that, you know, this is unfortunate, you know, diversity is great, but unfortunately this is a winner takes all situation. It does remind me a little bit, you know, in hearing about the differences in your approaches to interoperability, um, you know, common on one side, you know, I think everybody like sharing the same settlement layer with having the same VM, right? This sounds begins to sound a little bit more like the original kind of L1 race where you're recruiting as many apps as possible to be under this umbrella of shared properties, right? Um, whereas I think, you know, Sovereign Labs and Preston's approach sounds a little bit more like uh, IBC, right? Where you retain a, a much more sovereignty and in, in customization of your stack, um, but, you know, you are kind of at the whim of who you, uh, you know, agree to connect with via IBC um, you know, at, at, at any point, I mean, the risk is isolated, right. To each individual connection. Um, but is that, is that a fair approach to say that, you know, maybe one difference is that Preston, this is a little bit more of a bottoms up heterogeneous, you know, ecosystem versus common. This is, you know, looking at to be kind of a little bit more like a, a more scalable version of what's on a, a general purpose L1 chain, except each application has its own rollout. I do think that heterogeneity is possible in the actual virtual machine. You will just need, you know, a thin, uh, thin standard virtual machine to cover it. And I think this allows the best of both worlds, the seamless interoperability and the uh, customization that you want. So I do think that you are compatible. Yeah, great. We, we love to see bottom-up innovation. Um, from our perspective, yeah, yeah, we want to be very bottom-up. Um, the one thing I would maybe correct is, I, I probably explained this poorly earlier, but when you connect to a different chain, you don't accept any risk from that chain. Only the people who bridge their assets to that chain accept risk, right? So it's the same way that like someone deploying, deploying a smart contract on Ethereum doesn't have any risk for Ethereum. But if you as a user send your money to the smart contract, then like, of course, it can burn your money. Same thing with the chain here. So in our ecosystem, even if you bridge your money to that chain, you will not face any risks because each token standard will be the same and there will be no risk. But if you send your money to a smart contract, you can lose it, right? Just like you can. You know, oh, yeah. So really, our are equivalent to smart contracts. Okay. That's, that's okay. a good way to think of it. Yeah, I, I guess I would, I would just be curious, um, you know, for, for the two of you, right? Like the, the challenge, I would, I would guess, like kind of looking from the outside, right, is getting uh, application developers to, to build stuff, right. Leveraging your, leveraging your SDK, like just talk to me from even like a, a BD standpoint. I know we're in a bear market right now, so it's kind of head down and, and building and, uh, you know, shipping code kind of mode. Uh, but there's definitely like a BD component to, to both your businesses as, as well. So I'd be curious, like what, um, what's your kind of strategy for going out there and recruiting application developers? What are some of the value props and messages that, that resonate with them? Sure, I'm happy to start us off here. Um, so yeah, so we're very early, so it's it's pretty early to be thinking about BD too heavily, right? You got to build a product that users love, and then and then you can worry about BD a bit. Uh, but we've actually been pretty surprised by the volume of inbound communication that we've got. A lot of people are pretty desperate to have any way at all to build a zk rollup uh, that lets them control sort of the details of how that actually looks in practice. 
Um, so we, we can't announce anything yet, but we've had some teams that are pretty anxious to build demo applications with us to sort of get a sense of what this will look like. Um, and then, you know, we think we think the demand for block space will continue to grow as it gets cheaper. So um, certainly there is some work to be done recruiting existing apps to come over to more scalable architectures. But we think 90% of the demand will come from from new entrants to the space who we probably can't even imagine their applications yet because blocks are just too expensive right now. Yeah, and for us, you know, I, we think, I think there's just a huge demand for cheap transactions and cheap uh, block space. And, uh, you know, app developers just really want to run their own chain so that it's cheap for the users and that so that they can also, it also so serves the app monetization issue a bit because if you're an application developer that's running their own chain then you can also collect revenue for that and you know even the code can be open source and forkable but you can still get revenue unlike pure protocols that are on Ethereum. and then you know kind of going off of the the adoption standpoint you know you're building tools that you hope developers will love and that are easy to to use um and then once they build the applications, you know, you need to make it as frictionless as possible for users to come over and for service providers to start servicing the chain. Well, what do you think, you know, what are, what are kind of your top priorities in terms of the infrastructure required for user onboarding, you know, developer tooling, things like block explorers? How, how important are these that, you know, you know these kind of details that, that you may not think about, but, um, you know, you're trying to build a uh, mature ecosystem, right? Uh, at some point. So, how do you think about you know prioritizing those pieces of infrastructure and the sequence that they come in? So for us, you know, there are already giants in this industry, so it's not really worth it to reinvent the wheel. Uh, what we are focusing on is backwards compatibility. You know, making sure that existing tools and for existing infrastructures work. Yeah, and for us, we're starting a brand new ecosystem from scratch, so there's there's nothing there yet. So there's there's a lot a lot of work to do. Um, so a lot of our focus is on sort of making sensible design decisions. We have the benefit of having had a lot of people come before us. Um, so you know, for example, we can bake in account abstractions from day one and allow things like social recovery wallets and those sorts of things. Um, but frankly, we're still in the early stages of thinking about wallet designs and those sorts of things, and we probably won't have anything ready to announce as a spec or anything like that for quite some time. All right, guys. Um, well, you know, Miles, I think we, we got through a bunch of the, the, the sort of burning questions that, that we had for the two of you. And it's been a fascinating conversation. I guess if, if you want to leave uh, listeners with a couple words about either your ecosystem or what you're trying to do or something you're you know particularly excited about at either one of your projects, I think that'd be a great way to bookend the conversation. Follow us on Twitter. We're at slush. Slush.dev is our website. Short and simple, I like it. Yeah, um, at Sovereign, we think scaling should be really simple and we're excited to build in an open way. We'd love to have anybody come contribute, share your visions with us. Uh, let's build a better future together. Great parting words. Uh, all right, guys, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you for your time. Um, we'll have to do another uh, conversation like this soon. Cheers. Great episode. Um, what'd you think? Yeah, I thought that was great. Um, you know, I, we got a two uh, projects on, I would say, opposite ends of the spectrum within this family of, of app specific rollups. Um, you know, when you hear Preston talk about what they're building at Sovereign Labs, it sounds a lot more like the Cosmos approach with the full stack, um, full stack app chains in terms of what it's trying to, you know, in terms of its primary objectives. That approach, this architecture 
sounds as close as possible to getting the benefits of a full stack app chain um, to me when I hear, you know, things like being able to batch transactions together when you, because you own your own settlement layer um, versus I would say, you know, the other side of the spectrum with, with slush and just in general, you know, L3s settling to a shared L2 on Ethereum, you know, you, you are going to have the benefit of, I would say, you know, users that are already on Ethereum uh, from an onboarding standpoint, and you're going to be able to basically reuse a lot of components um, from these applications that are, that are already using, you know, the same EVM. Um, and within that family of L3s, you'll have the seamless interoperability, but, you know, they are putting a much higher priority on, on security. And so it, it does not, you know, allow for some of the customization it would like will likely have you know higher levels of friction to go in between different l3s or you know going from a full stack app chain to an l3 um so very different ends of the spectrum here but both very very valid approaches uh, that i think are solving different things i think one of the one of the challenges uh recurring challenge of this season has just been you know when you sort of ask these guys some some questions about what they're thinking about or what they're building. It's just so, so early, right? Like even that question, I think that you and I were both kind of dying to get answered of what is the the minimum viable stack look like? The the honest truth, uh, you know, that we'd prefer not to hear is that it's just too darn early to to get to the bottom of that. Right. We, we, we have some ideas, right? Um, we know they need some sort of VM um, on top. They need, you know, bridging infrastructure to some extent. Um, and we know that they need, you know, a process to sequence transactions to prove their validity. Um, and, you know, there, there are just so many flavors to, to, I guess, put these different components together. Um, and again, we've only seen the SDK Cosmos SDK really in action. Um, and so it's hard, hard to evaluate exactly, you know, which apps might be suited for which type of stack just yet. Yeah. There's also, uh, you know, the other thing that I think that you and I are very curious about is what is the the uh, network effects looks like, look like around those those SDKs as well. And I think there was a little bit of confusion, uh, you know, with with being Kalman on on which uh, where the network effects were accruing to the to the SDK or to the actual protocol uh, sort of network itself. But um, you know, I think Preston answered us there that uh, you know, there there are significant network effects for SDKs, which is what I would have naturally kind of thought made sense. Exactly. And I think you, it's a balance of really trying to, you know, have as many sort of common properties as possible, uh, between different apps that use the same stack. Um, and you're balancing that against, you know, giving those app developers as much customizability as possible. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think sovereign labs will, will have many different, you know, flavors of, of, of applications that are using, you know, different levels of customizability um, across that stack. And so, you know, that may lead to some being more interoperable than others. Um, and, you know, I think but it's all, it's all very early. I, I totally agree. hundred percent. And I think, you know, one uh, concept that both common and Preston were kind of going back and forth on is this sort of, this recurring challenge or, or need to balance between sort of, building in a place where there's distribution, but there might be some amount of kind of uh, tactical debt or, or limitations in terms of what you can build versus kind of going out on your own, 
uh, in building something new where you have less restrictions around what you can build and account for, but you don't necessarily have the benefit of people existing in one uh, on, on an ecosystem. And it'll be very interesting to see, you know, founders make that that trade off. Uh, and it, it's very hard to know, I think, at this point, who is going to ultimately be successful with that approach. I could kind of see it go another way. Yeah, I think you and I are, are both not technical. And uh, maybe maybe that's the reason that we put such a big emphasis on BD. Um, yeah. But I think that's, you know, uh, an underappreciated component here um, in, that, in how strategic you are about uh, recruiting applications. I mean, just out front, are you are you? building for existing applications and and thus making you know your stack as backwards compatible with their existing applications as possible or are you building for applications that have not you know been developed yet um but you're building you know infrastructure that will allow these applications you know to be really differentiated versus what is it, it, it you know what's out there at the moment um because of the limitations that the existing apps have and it does sound like you know, again, Sovereign Labs is more building for the latter there for for applications that you know have not have not been developed yet, versus Slush is putting a much higher priority on on making you know their SDK backwards compatible with, say, existing applications that are on Ethereum L1 or are on Starknet already. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's I think it's it's interesting to to ask them about those different approaches. Um, it's very different. There's a uh, there's a saying that. First time founders think about product. Second time founders think about distribution, and uh, it's kind of one of those cute little saying. But it, but it is, but it is true. You know, I mean, the it's not to be underestimated the power of BD and and distribution. I think maybe in crypto, one slight caveat or addendum to that is what you don't want is for your brand to be about BD. You know, right. uh, because I think that's a that's a signal to your community that the tech isn't is of second priority. Um, so what you almost want is this this happy medium where your brand is to be very tech focused uh, and developer friendly, but you to be uh, you know vicious on the BD kind of low key, <laughs> you know. So yeah. that's the 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 golden ratio of balance. Exactly. To the to the extent that you can get some early adopters and you know at least appear to have a grassroots approach um, and letting those early adopters you know sing your praises and and. Pro- you know, provide that viral marketing for you. Um, you know, I think I think that's extremely effective. Um, so, you know, I'd be very curious to talk to these guys a little bit more about you know who are you, how are you approaching getting a couple pilot customers um, on your stack? You know, and and what what are the qualities that you want in those pilot customers? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm sure this is the case. I think it's the case everywhere, but uh, it's very important. And I think in crypto. I'm saying this as a, as a founder who's struggled with this myself, but it's very important to think about brand. And, um, you know, you very you want to be very conscious about creating something that people can root for. You want to be very conscious that you are positioning yourself in the market. And sometimes positioning yourself, the thing that feels very uncomfortable is sometimes positioning feels like you are limiting yourself. Um, and by that, you mean, I'm going to focus on this one thing. I'm going to do it very well. I mean, they're going to focus within, you know, this particular ecosystem, or I'm going to focus on this one particular use case. And most, the vast majority of people react super negatively to that because they say, well, I, I, I could do all of these things. Why would I limit myself? But it's very, eh, you know, when you're deep in it, it's hard to take the perspective of someone else who you need to know you get like an association and you can broaden that association over time and grow it. But 
brand is a, uh, you know, we had a very technical discussion, but if brand, I think is something that bears a lot. Well, of I agree. And, and, and the positioning um, standpoint, because, you know, as I would put myself in their shoes, it makes things a little bit more approachable by, by being, um, having, you know, specific direction with your positioning, um, and going after either a certain, you know, sector or going after a certain ecosystem first, but at the same time, you want to really let demand kind of dictate what your positioning looks like. And sometimes you don't know where the demand is going to come from. Um, you know, I think we saw this on Solana, right? They were originally kind of a positioning as, as the nice, you know, built on blockchains and over time, you know, the, the demand really came from, from the NFT and from the, the gaming side. Um, you know, that's, that's where they've now begun to shift their positioning maybe. Um, but, you know, I think keeping, I, I agree with the, with that point where, you know, by li could limit yourself if you're wrong about where the actual demand is going to come from and you need to be nimble enough to pivot to, to, you know, meet that demand. All right, Miles, this has been another fun interview as always. I will see you for next week. 